you know, it is unfortunate, but on the other hand, I'd also say it's inspiring. When you and I spoke a year ago, our expectation, certainly mine, and I've studied warfare my entire life, was that if Russia would win this war in a few days, they would capture Kiev, they would destroy the country of Ukraine, they would destroy Ukrainian freedom, Ukrainian independence. And here we are one year later, and that has not happened. And in fact, I would argue at this moment, at best for the Russians, the war is a stalemate. At worst for the Russians, the Russians are on their heel and heels. Um, and certainly there's a hope, at least in Ukraine, in the coming months, based on the provisions of U.S. and other countries' military assistance, that Ukraine may be able to affect a counteroffensive to recover a lot of the territory they've lost in the last year. Jeff, let's let's get into the Ukraine uh, people and uh, Vladimir Zelensky, and, and and certainly he has been front and center with this. He's been an inspiration. The hearts of those Ukrainians have been an inspiration, and NATO staying together in their support is probably the biggest surprise for Vladimir Putin in Russia. So, talk about that aspect of this war. Well, again, if we go back one year, Mr. Putin, I think, made two enormously faulty assumptions at the start of this conflict. The first was that Ukraine would not fight. Uh, the Russians would roll over them, as they had done in 2014 when they captured uh, Crimea and when they seized a large portion of Luhansk and Donetsk provinces. But, in fact, the Ukrainians did fight, and did fight very effectively. And a corollary of that, of course, is he assumed his military was going to be all-powerful, and we've seen them to be, frankly, from a military assessment, I'd say they've been incompetent. And you know, the second assumption he made, you've already suggested, Ray, and that is he assumed NATO would fall apart. NATO would not show a great deal of unity. He had seen a disorganized NATO. He had seen Mr. Trump during his presidency talking about pulling the United States out of NATO. He'd seen a disorganized withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was the U.S. as well as the NATO mission. So he didn't think that uh, NATO would be united and be able to make a response. And consequently, that has proven to be totally false as well as we see a, a dramatic revitalization, I think, in many ways, uh, of the NATO alliance to the point, as the president said last week in Warsaw, that Mr. Putin expected the, expected the Finlandization of NATO or the neutralization of NATO. What he actually got is the NATOization of Finland. As I think the other alliance is stronger today, certainly than it was a year ago. It's stronger today. It's been a long time. And uh, very shortly, we should see the admission of both Sweden and Finland to make NATO larger and even stronger. Military consultant, CBS News, Jeff McCoslin with us. Jeff, through your military background, talk about Russia and their invasion into the Ukraine. To me, from the outside looking in, it almost looks archaic the way they've invaded the Ukraine. But look at it from a military aspect and educate us a little bit on what you've seen from them that really hasn't worked in their favor. Well, again, if you sit down and look at the raw numbers of tanks and soldiers and airplanes on the two sides, you would have come up to the conclusion we suggested that Russia would win quickly. And we know they believe that because there's been reports now that Russian officers were told to pack their dress uniforms because they'd need them for the victory parade and the victory celebration that would happen in a couple of days in Kiev. I hope those guys are still carrying those uniforms around. But as they made the invasion, we found their had woefully inadequate ability to what we would call coordinate combined arms. What I mean by that is the integration of all the elements of warfare, <clears throat> ground attack infantry supported by tanks and mechanized forces, supported by artillery, supported by aircraft overhead, and supported by an air defense network that protects the people on ground from your, your opponent's uh, aircraft. 
and the Russians were unable to coordinate that particular type of effort. And in fact, secondly, they had five avenues of advance. So they violated one of the first principles of command, which is unity of command. In fact, they did not put a unified commander in charge of their so-called special technical military operation until October. So how do you prioritize what particular avenue is the number one priority? How do you prioritize resupply? How do you prioritize troops? And then last, but certainly not least, they've been woefully inadequate in their ability to supply that particular force uh, as it now has been engaged in heavy combat, the loss of up to 200,000 uh, casualties. Uh, that alone you know, sounds macabre, but 200,000 casualties is an enormous logistical problem. How do you evacuate the wounded? How do you put forward military hospitals? How do you evacuate the dead? Their inadequacy in doing that one thing spreads across their entire logistics network in terms of resupply of ammunition, resupply of fuel, their ability to repair equipment uh, forward so equipment can get back in the fight. So a real lack of coordination and a lack of command. And then last but not least, the Russians are a very down-looking command structure. You know, we create a plan, and you execute the plan. If the plan doesn't work, it just means you're not executing the plan hard enough. So you keep doing it over and over and over and over. There's not much room for initiative, innovation, being nimble in the battlefield of the 21st century demands all those things. Jeff, let me ask you this. We also know that Russia has a lot of ammo still at home. And when I'm talking nuclear power and that type of thing, is there a, is there a concern that with the way that they've seen this war going that they could dig deeper into their arsenal? Yeah, there certainly is. Uh, not so much about ammunition, but also about military hardware. We're starting to see older and older Russian tanks. T-60, I was talking to folks in Kiev the other day, T-62s, and the expectation we might even see T-55 tanks. These would be tanks that would be 75 or 80 years old that the Russians still have in storage. But if serviceable, might have some impact on the battlefield, would probably be uh, deadly for their crew, but still could have some effect. We see a lessening of Russian artillery fire. At one point in time, the Russians were firing up to 60,000 rounds of artillery a day. Uh, and now in the ongoing offensive in the Donbass, there seems to be a lessening dramatically of Russian artillery fire, which many people interpret as, again, their industrial base not being able to keep up with the pace of expenditure. And we know the Russians have now reached beyond their borders to try to purchase particularly artillery ammo uh, from the North Koreans. Obviously, they've also purchased a large number of drones, from Iran in the last few days, based on comments made by the Secretary of State and others, a growing concern that the Chinese may be leaning towards providing so-called lethal aid, which would be ammo, weapons, et cetera, to the Russians. Jeff, my final question for you this morning, we're now one year in, and much of 2023 still needs to unfold. What do you envision from what you've seen the last couple of weeks from the Russians and the Ukrainians, what do you envision with this war going forward? Well, we have to be very clear-eyed about there are very difficult days ahead. And I always like to say hope is not a method. You have hope, but it's not a method. You've still got to plan and execute. I hope that what will happen and think what will happen is that the Ukrainians will be able to hold out against this ongoing offensive right now the Russians are conducting. If that occurs for the next few weeks, then as we get into, I'd say, late April or May, 
with the influx of military hardware, particularly tanks, armored personnel carriers, and the like, then perhaps the Ukrainians can mount a counteroffensive, which I would expect to be in the south, to try to cut the land bridge connecting Russia to Ukraine and have some success in doing that. At that point in time, then it becomes a question of whether that is dramatic enough to move the situation towards a diplomatic solution or we just establish a new front that becomes somewhat of a frozen conflict. Or, frankly, we have to continue to be concerned about the fact as this war goes on, Mr. Putin becomes more isolated and he finds that he's not having success conventionally. Uh, does he begin to threaten more and more the possible use of nuclear weapons to end this particular conflict in some fashion, in some fashion, that he can try to describe as success.